This morning, I am really excited to introduce Stacy Gluddy Smith to preach to us this morning. Stacy is the Director of Worship Arts Program at Columbia Bible College. She received a Master of Divinity with a concentration in Christianity and the Arts from Regent College. She's currently pursuing a Doctorate of Ministry in New Testament at the Northwood Seminary in Chicago. And she has over 20 years of experience leading worship in various church and mission contexts and is particularly interested in the biblical theology of worship and how that translates into our church practices. So she is the perfect person to come and talk to us this morning as we continue our series in spiritual formation about how worship plays a critical role in our spiritual formation. So Stacy, I welcome you this morning. for that warm welcome. And I'll try not to fiddle with my headpiece too much as I speak. I've been fiddling with it all morning. Um, so I shall try to stop. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm delighted to be back with Eagle Ridge community. And before I begin, um, I would be remiss if I didn't bring greetings to you from Columbia Bible College. Our mission is to equip people for a life of discipleship, ministry, and leadership in service to church and community. And we are so thankful to be partners with you in that mission. So if you're here and you're thinking about Bible college or you know someone who is, I am, um, I'm told I'm quite approachable. So you can come speak to me after. Um, but I will bring greetings to you from Brian Bourne, our president. I was going to bring greetings from Shar Workington, who many of you know well. But there she is, so she can greet you herself. Um, and from all the staff and faculty at CBC, we really do consider ourselves co-workers with you. And we're grateful to you for the work that you do in this community and for the way you shine the light of Christ in this space. And I do get to speak to you about worship arts this morning, whether you're interested in studying with me at CBC or not. So having brought you greetings as Paul does in each of his letters, uh, let's dive in. When Ariel asked me to preach on this topic, we got into this great conversation about the definition of worship. And so I think that's a good place to start any foray into, um, into trying to understand what we do um, when we gather and even what we do when we scatter. At its most basic, a good biblical definition of worship is response to God's person and work. It's very broad. <laughs> and that broad definition of worship as response allows me to speak with students about a theology of worship that encompasses all of life. And then within that, we look at gathered worship as everything we do on Sunday morning, from greeting at the door to coffee to snacks to sermons to announcements, kids' stories, communion, all of those things that we do are a part of our gathered worship. And it's only then that I start to talk to students about music and the arts as a part of that gathered worship. So this morning, I'm going to focus on that narrowest point of the definition. But because I am who I am, I'm not going to be able to fully resist going a little bit like this <laughs> as we speak. So I hope you will excuse that. And then um, Ariel will flesh that out even more, I, as I understand it, next week. 
So we're going to talk about the use of worship. That means we talk about a worship team and worship practice and that tells us to stand and worship at given moments in the service, even though we've already been worshiping, even though we were worshiping before we stepped in these doors. One of the reasons that I think it's important that we regain a broad scriptural definition of worship is because we have spent decades now in the church lifting up the sermon at the expense of everything else. She preaches. Preaching the word of God is important, absolutely. But we need to stop viewing the rest of what happens on a Sunday as decorative wrapping paper for the message. Because if that's how we view it, if we view the rest of the stuff as unimportant, we fail to recognize its power. And we devalue the word, suggesting that it needs to be wrapped up in pretty paper in order to be understood as good news. So we're going to spend a bit of time looking at the rest of the stuff of Sunday morning and music specifically, asking an intentionally leading question. How does liturgy, the other stuff, form us? How is singing together, in particular, formational for the church? And we're going to do that by looking at Colossians 3, 12 to 17. And I have to pause to tell you that last night, my husband Andrew and I had a friend over for dinner. And my husband Andrew is um, the, the pastor at Fraserview Church in Richmond. And my friend asked him, what are you preaching on this Sunday, Andrew? And he said, Colossians 3, 12 to 17. And I said, me too. <laughs> so across town, my husband is at this moment preaching on exactly the same text, which uh, maybe tells me we need to have more intentional communication in our marriage, that we didn't know that. So let me read it for you now. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The structure of this passage has Paul first show us a vision of what the church should be, right? Kindness, humility, compassion, gentleness, patience. But Paul is not saying that we automatically and instantly become compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patience as soon as we belong to the family of God. Clothe yourselves, he says, a reference to reclothing after baptism, 
to throwing off the clothes you wore before knowing Christ, throwing off an old way of being, and dressing yourself in a new way of being. It's an image that is both all at once and bit by bit. There's an instant change followed by a constant and consistent changing into. But how does this change happen? And Paul modifies that first chunk of the text um, by helping us understand how we learn these things. And he says we learn them through singing to God, through psalms, hymns, and songs. And there it's not so much about whether these are different types of songs that were sung at this time. This is Paul emphasizing by repetition. So he's saying, sing, sing, sing some more. (laughs) And then you will learn um, this new way of being. Paul seems to suggest here and elsewhere that we are formed as we gather, and even particularly in singing, which we'll talk about later, but we're formed by the patterns of our worship. I wrote a paper years ago on the ethics of worship, and as part of that paper, I researched community formation from the perspective of, this is hard to say, ethicists, people who study ethics. I always struggle with that word. And I read study after study after study of various groups, churches, tribes, clubs, cultures, and each one of these studies concluded that the shaping force for community behavior and ethics is the shared ritual actions of the community. The things we repeat together when gathered are formational. They form us. So whether or not you consider ritual important, it's quite likely that you're being shaped by the rituals you share as a community. And Paul's encouragement towards gathering in his letters points toward the formational power of our gathered worship. And he's not alone in that. We could look at the encouragement in Hebrews 10 to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We could consider Jesus' words in Matthew 18, saying where two or three of us are gathered, he's there. We could examine the pointed use of gather and together language in Acts 2 to consider how important it is in the formation of the church itself. All of these texts point to the formational power of our gathered worship. But you'll be learning more about the gathering as a whole next week. So I want to turn now to talk specifically about music in this context. How is music part of the formational act of gathered worship? There's a reason we often misdefine the word worship as that part of the service in which we sing together. Music has been a part of the gathered worship of the church since before there was a church since the first psalm was written, since Miriam led the people of God as she danced singing by the Red Sea. It was a part of worship in the tabernacle and echoed in the courtyard of Solomon's temple. It wept by the rivers of Babylon and sprung rejoicing from choirs standing on the rebuilt walls of Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples sang the Hallel, or the Hallelujah, Psalm 113 to 118, before hiking up the Mount of Olives on the night Jesus was arrested. Paul and Silas 
filled their prison in Philippi with song. And as other prisoners listened, the doors flew open and chains fell clattering to the floor. But why? (laughs) Why has music been so essential in the worship of the church for all this time? You can tell I'm a little passionate about this. This is what I do when I get passionate. We call it in my family the glitty chin wobble. Um, So you can help me out. If you spot that, you can laugh at me, and then I'll recover. Paul says um, in the end of verse 16 through 17, he says, we should sing to God with gratitude in our hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And I think that text probably reflects the way we most often think of music in our worship services. And I think it's right. We sang into that this morning, all creatures of our God and King. We sang about the reason that we praise God, and we reminded each other of those reasons together and then sang praise. We think of our, our singing on Sunday morning as turning together to thank God for his work in and through us. And that's a good description of praise. Music helps us with that. But that's not all music does for us. And so rather than spend a lot of time on what praise is, I want to move to these less familiar aspects of how worship uh, music helps to form us. And I want to turn to two things that Paul talks about here, unity and teaching. We are formed into the people of God as we gather. And I would say that music helps us to hear that unity and actually to be and become unified. Music is one way of formation that leads to unity if we let it and if we approach it understanding what it does. In verse 15, Paul states, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as members of one body. You were called to peace. Members of one body. It's one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the church. And it's a metaphor of interdependence in which each part needs each other part in order to function. In which each bite of food eaten nourishes the whole in which each wound or injury is experienced by the whole. And Paul will turn to music as a means of absorbing the message of Christ in the very next verse. Music helps us to hear unity that doesn't erase diversity. Sometimes when we hear the word unity, we think it means a lack of conflict, a lack of disagreement, but that's not actually a very good definition of of unity. And what Paul often speaks about in the church is a unity of diversity. And that's part of the body language he's using here. Beat and melody allow us to sing the same words at the same time without erasing emotion. When we read text together, we impose a beat upon the text for ease of unison. You know this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. 
<laughs> but when we do that, we end up in this kind of chanting group speak that takes some of the emotional content out of the words and therefore takes some of the meaning out of the words. Not that it's wrong to speak in unison, but what music helps us to do is to hold that emotion in the words that we're singing. Melody and chord structure can carry some of that emotional content for us, and well-crafted musical phrasing, melodic phrasing, allows us to express together in unison both meaning and emotion. But at the same time, one of the reasons that music is so effective in the church is because it's accessible to pretty much everyone, even if some of us struggle to carry the tune. We still have a voice. We can still make the attempt. And so even as we lift our voices in unison, we hear the diversity of the voices around us. And it's this metaphor, <laughs> a powerful metaphor for what we are together. All of these unique, imperfect voices lifted together to sing one song. Interestingly, Recent research into music and specifically choral singing reveals that there's an inherent unification that happens when a group of people sing together. When individuals, strangers to each other, were asked to sing together chorally and were given a survey to determine how close they felt to others in the group before singing and then after singing, the feeling of closeness increased dramatically in each test case. Other researchers looking at brain function have determined that singing or making music together with a group of individuals causes something called mirror neurons in our brains to actually sync up until they're moving in unison. And researchers have hypothesized that these mirror neurons, um, what they do in our brains is they help us recognize the intentions of others but they also help us to develop empathy, kind of understand where the other person is coming from. And I wonder about this research in the context of Paul's instruction in Romans 12 to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. For the sake of unity, it's important that we hear each other sing. It's important to sing in the context of others. For example, when I am rejoicing, a chorus of other voices rejoicing with me adds to my joy. It affirms goodness. It's like God standing back after a day of creation and saying, oh, it's good. <laughs> but when I'm mourning, singing along with those who rejoice, reminds me that God is good, even if my circumstances are not. Participating in the joyful singing of others helps me understand that there's still light in the world and goodness, even if I can't hear or see it or feel it in that moment. When I'm mourning, a chorus of other voices mourning with me helps me to understand that I'm not alone in the darkness. And when I'm rejoicing, singing along with those who mourn reminds me that the world is still a broken place in need of God and helps me understand that we have work left to do in partnership with him.
that's a deep unity. It's a unity of relationality, a unity in which we are present in this space, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of others. So I want to pause for a moment and ask you an uncomfortable question. How often do you come to church in the morning or flip on the live stream at home and think of that as a way for you to be fed? Now, of course, gathered worship should be nourishing, but scriptural language of worship is a little less self-focused than we tend to be. Paul in Romans 12 uses the language of sacrifice. It's soft language now. We use the word sacrifice to speak of sacrificing our time to help a friend move or sacrificing some of the little luxuries in life to build a child's college fund. We basically use it as synonymous with to give something up. But when Paul tells the church in Rome that the proper response to all that God is and does is to offer their bodies as living sacrifices, the language would have hit just a little bit differently. Because in Paul's time, sacrifice always took place in a temple, in one of the many Greco-Roman temples or in the one temple in Jerusalem, but always a temple. And sacrifice of a body had connotations of great cost, of knives, of blood, of flesh burning. These are the way, this is what is in the back of people's minds as they hear those words from Paul. And every person in the church of Rome knew that if you were bringing an animal to the temple for sacrifice, it was not for the animal's benefit. In view of God's mercy, considering who God is and all he has done, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, that you would lay yourselves down on the altar, that you would give up everything and not for your own sake. Just imagine if we entered through these doors every Sunday morning with that in our minds. How will I lay myself down on the altar for my community today? Imagine if we exited these doors with the thought, where is my God asking me to lay myself down on the altar in my work, my studies, my relationships and conversations so that someone else can meet with God, so that he can draw near to them? Because the Hebrew word for sacrifice, which Paul surely has in mind, even though he's writing in Greek, carries the connotation of to draw near. So we respond to the lamb who was slain by laying ourselves on the altar beside him to be the place in which others are enabled to draw near to God. It's quite a thought, isn't it? So on Sunday morning, when you don't feel like singing, you can ask yourself the question, okay, but who am I singing for? It doesn't matter if you're not feeling it. Maybe someone else needs your voice. We gather and sing for each other. It's part of our mutual submission. 
Singing together, even when we don't feel like it, is an act of discipline that helps form us into the body of Christ that is like the picture of the church we get in verses 12 to 14. A church that loves because it looks outward. So singing is not just about pushing our own voices outward. It's hearing the voices of others and allowing our own voice to blend into that whole. And sometimes it's about singing on behalf of others. I sing this song because I know that this person two rows down can't sing it today. I will sing it for them. But music, singing together, suggests Paul, is also essential for the teaching of the church. In verse 16, he says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with your life verses. No, with 45-minute sermons. No, with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Of course we sing to God. The last part of the text names that. Paul instructs the church to sing to God with gratitude. But Paul also assumes that we sing to each other. If you read the psalms, many of them are sung to the people of Israel by the people of Israel, rather than to God. And some of them shift their audience partway through. <laughs> and we did some of that this morning as we sang as well. And Paul here assumes that songs sung in the church should be useful for teaching and admonishment. When it comes to formation, we form each other by singing to each other. Our own voice sings, and we hear it echoed back to us through others, and so are instructed ourselves even as we instruct others. I think that's one of the most beautiful aspects of our gathered worship. Earlier, talking about unity, I said we sing for each other. And now we learn that we also sing to each other. And if we go back to the Romans 12 text, we see that in that text as well. Paul's description of our true and proper worship is followed by, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We instruct our minds and emotions when we sing to each other, and that instruction is shaping. We learn together to break out of old patterns and live into a new pattern of life that turns us toward each other and then outward toward the world. We learn together to say amen to the will of God, not out of duty, but because we've learned to recognize its goodness. But why does Paul insist in Colossians that we do this through music? I think some of it is practical. We remember things better when we sing them. I'm not sure how awake you are. Let's test you. See if you can finish this phrase. A, B, C, D. Okay, very good. You can stop there. We don't have to do the whole alphabet, right? Let's try another test. Uh, when we read, we begin, we begin with ABC. When we sing, we begin with Do, Re, Mi. The first three notes just happen to be Do, Re, Mi. Thank you for letting me live out my childhood fantasy of being the lead in that movie. Thank you. We teach kids with music for a reason because sung words stay in our heads more easily than spoken words. 
I would suggest that most of the scripture you know by heart, you know because it's connected to a melody. You may not even know you know it. I'm looking around wondering if this test is going to fly or not, but I'm going to try it. I lift my eyes up. Okay. Thank you. You're very, very obedient and responsive. I appreciate that. I defy you (laughs) to memorize Psalm 121 without that song in your head. And if you go to the text of Psalm 121, you'll realize how much of it you've memorized because of Brian Dirksen. That's who wrote that song, right? I didn't actually put that in my notes. Thank you. Char's nodding. We believe Char. Okay. So we learn through melody. Melody carries memory. No one is going to leave church this morning humming my sermon. But a well-chosen song might not only pull the words of the song itself into the following week, but also the words of scripture that we've unpacked together. And those words lifted to our minds on the wings of a melody can be a shaping force not only in this space, but as we exit these doors and scatter to our individual context. We move differently through the world when the words of scripture, words of who God is, of who we are, words of comfort and challenge are floating on the surface of our minds as we make decisions, as we converse with others as we choose how to respond to the checkout person at Superstore. When we learn through singing, we are unwound from previous ways of being and wound more deeply into our unified life as the body of Christ. It makes it all the more essential that we do this, that we instruct and admonish one another in song, as Paul says, with all wisdom. If the words we sing are going to sink deep into our minds and hearts, then what we sing matters. We don't necessarily need to quote scripture directly in every song, but we do need our songs to be scriptural. We need worship pastors like Ariel who are going to think deeply about the music we choose, who are equipped to be gatekeepers for us because the music chosen has formational power. It's important. It's not window dressing. So, in conclusion, I don't really care if you don't like to sing. I don't care if the music doesn't do it for you. That sounds a bit harsh because I do actually care. (laughs) I care when people choose not to sing. I care when people come late so they can just hear the sermon and go because you're missing out on something essential. But maybe you're just shy or self-conscious about your voice, or maybe you've just thought of music in the church as window dressing, and so you haven't realized that you're skipping something substantial. My hope for you today is that whether you love singing or whether it's not your thing, you can find a new way in. So I have some closing questions for you. What if you're not singing because you love singing? What if instead you're singing because the person two rows down from you is really struggling and you know they need to hear the words of the song we're about to sing? 
What if you're singing because the person three rows up loves this particular song, and so you sing it for them, even though you hate it, because you love them and you want to share in their joy? What if you're singing because it's important for that part of who God is to sink deeply into your neighbor? And what if you're listening for your neighbor to sing those words to you so that you can carry them with you into your week? What if it doesn't matter what your voice sounds like? What if you don't have to be Ariel or David singing on stage? What if it only matters that you can hear your voice in a chorus of other voices, imperfect, unique, lifted together in unison? What if, as we sing these next songs, you think of worship as sacrifice? Yes, of course, you should be fed on a Sunday morning. But your focus is not on, was I fed? But instead on, did I feed someone else? So as I pray for you and as the band comes back up, I encourage you to sing these next two songs a bit differently. Sing them for each other. Sing them to each other. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the God who sings over us, who sing praise on our behalf. Would you teach us again to sing, not only to you in thanksgiving, but also to each other as we learn together what it means to be your body. Help us to sing on behalf of each other, rejoicing with those among us who rejoice and weeping with those among us who weep. Teach us again to really hear each other and form us together towards your kingdom. Amen.